This is what I've been waiting for. What exactly was your relationship with your mother? I was her son. I'm looking for love. I'm looking for love. I'm looking for love. I'm looking for... And then daddy will show you his impressionations. <laughs> This podcast contains swearing and crap impressions. If you don't like swearing or crap impressions, this isn't the podcast you're looking for. You can go about your business. Move along. Hello and welcome to First Impressions, the podcast that puts the um into bunkum and the er uh into erroneous. My name is Peter Humphreys, a writer and editor based in Lancaster, UK, with a compulsion to bring you impressions and bookish matters, not as some kind of weird ego trip. It's definitely not that, but to introduce you to people who have made a big impression on me. In episode 7, we welcome the writer and musical Marvin, Gareth Stevens, to the show. Gareth and I met in Hong Kong some years ago, yes, in the pub since you ask. Like me, Gareth has since relocated back to the UK. Unlike me, he has a musical talent that has seen him drum with some of the best in the business and a writing portfolio that includes reports from the front line of world-altering events in Hong Kong and Mozambique. Today, we also welcome not one, but two Frank Spencers to the show. Feedback suggests that one Frank is more than enough. Fuck the feedback. Today, we shall witness nothing less than a Frank-off between myself and a listener who had the audacity to challenge me to a duel he surely cannot win. I will be asking you, dear listener, to judge who has the best Frank game a little later on. Never has the pressure on the enormous listenership been so intense. Forgive us. Forgive Frank too, if you can. Gareth, welcome to First Impressions. How are you? I'm good, Peter. Thank you. Yeah, good to see you. It's such a tease in many ways because when was the last time we met? We met in Brighton, I think, a couple of years ago, didn't we? That's right. Yeah, down for my friend uh, Emma's wedding. How has it been down there through, uh, through lockdown, in and out of lockdown? I found it quite difficult, really. Yeah, I think like most people, but I constantly remind my, myself that I'm one of the lucky ones. You know, I have a roof over my head. Financially, I'm reasonably okay. But yeah, I can't, I can't lie that the isolation has been hard. I'm living on my own. But on the plus side, I've got the seafront 100 metres down the road and there's loads of beautiful benches there. So when the weather allows, I can have socially distanced meetings with one other and yeah I know we were talking about both coming back from Hong Kong and we'll talk about Hong Kong in a bit but you know you I think you when you were arriving there and, and settling in and obviously it's you know you know that coast pretty well but you were mm. you were impressed with the scene that you um that you found yes yeah, so Leonard's is is a bit of an upcoming place um it it I mean it, back in the day and I've done, I did a few gigs here way back in the late 80s early 90s and it was I wouldn't say no-go area, but it had a serious rep uh, and there are still kind of a residual social and economic issues, which sort of kind of mean that it still has really. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, since lockdown, I think people are beginning to realise that, you know, if I'm working at home, I can live anywhere. Why would I draw um, like a, a lockdown in Clapham in London if I can yep. sell my two-bedroom flat, one-bedroom flat there and by somewhere beautiful in St. Leonard's. We have this acronym in, uh, in St. Leonard's, it's called um, DFL, which is down from London. Um, okay. I'm quite pleased that I, I didn't qualify for that. I'm not even a, an OFB, which is over from Brighton as well, which is right. uh, another acronym which is trotted out um, because I'm over from Hong Kong. Seriously, I should talk to you about my local pub, the Horse and Groom. The governor of the Horse and Groom makes Al Murray look effete. You know, he's, he's, <laughs> he's brusque, he's rude, he's probably right-leaning in terms of his politics, and the pub doesn't look as if it's had a makeover since 1950s. But I have met so many staggeringly interesting people in there, and it's taught me a lesson, really. I've always, I've always considered myself to be someone who kind of my ground state is everyone's good until they prove to me anything otherwise. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I, I, the, the number of times in my local pub, I've got talking to someone and thought, oh my God, you know, like not even thought it, but had the, this prejudicial view that this is just a guy down the pub just mm-hmm. drinking on his own. And he's, you know, bit of a bit of a sad fucker, I suppose, even though it never got to the verbal level. And then you meet them and you, you know, mm-hmm. I met this one guy right out in the garden uh, I'm not going to mention his name, but but, mm-hmm. and he came out and he was he was going on about like I have to come out of the house of a fag. My wife doesn't let me smoke. 
Okay. Uh, and and I got chatting to him, and, he, and and it turns out he's a photographer, and he builds his own cameras, and he takes photographs of flowers. Gosh. And this guy's kind of elderly and a little bit frail. Yeah. And uh, and I said, well, the only photographer I know sort of kind of does that sort of thing is Robert Maplethorpe, oh. you know, who did these amazing photographs of like irises and whatever, oh, yes. and also lo yes. lots of photographs of naked black men as well. And, and Willie's on there, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> Willie's and, said, and, and, and his response to that was, he said, oh, Bob, I can't stand that man. He was a neighbor of mine when I lived in Manhattan in the 70s. <laughs> and, I, and I just went, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> And, and that has happened countless times in St. Leonard's. These, this place is just full of people with such provenance and, and who have lived such interesting lives. Gosh. Uh, another instance was I was out in the same backyard. My local pub has such a tiny backyard. And I was having a really animated conversation about music. And this guy with a kind of Mancunian accent came over and said, do you mind if I join you? I, mm. Yeah. Yeah, really fascinating conversation. So conversation mm. went on and we carried on for about 10, 15 minutes. Uh, and then I said to him, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Mick, yeah, are you are you a musician? He says, yeah, yeah, I'm a musician. I said, mm -hmm. I said well, what, have, you, have, you, are you, have you been in a band? He said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, would I know them? And he said, oh, they were called Baby Shambles. <laughs> and, and it turns out it was Mick Whitnell from oh. um, said Baby Shambles. Yeah, yeah. So was famously working with Amy Whitehouse right. on her third album when she when she left us, and Mick's become a real firm friend, you know. And he is so down to earth and such a wonderful guy. And now, believe it or not, we just text each other about cooking tips. Cooking he's tips, a really right. he's a real foodie, you know. I see. Uh, yeah, but anyway, I just I just use these to illustrate just what a, a wonderful place I found myself in. Come and visit, but don't don't. Put pressure on the uh, property prices. I'll do my <laughs> best. I do. It's not something I generally do. <laughs> there are huge debates here about the gentrification process, uh, and of course, it's a chain of events where people are getting priced out of London, so they come down here. So they're the victim of gentrification in London, but they come here and then then disadvantage local kind of renters and and prospective first-time buyers. But you know, it's the way of the world, isn't it? It is. It mm. seems almost wherever I end up or, you know, perhaps you feel the same, you know, it seems to be that process, you know, is, is being undertaken in Buenos Aires. A lot of the old buildings are going and uh, a lot of the old locals are having to leave. And perhaps mm. when we were in Hong Kong as well, because we're talking of pubs, we, we would have met first off in Club 71 mm. in, in Shenwan there, which was also being gentrified, wasn't it, to some extent? Um, well, yeah, you know, it's closed down now. And that was because um, Grace was faced with a, a rent hike mm -hmm. but also obviously because it was a little bit of a, a hotbed of kind of pro-democracy activism mm -hmm. as well I mean it, it, it was never going to get let off any hooks at all you know no there um, was often the police mm -hmm. were sort of were keen on just calling weren't they every now and again going up down the yeah. alley complaining about people in the street and stuff we met there and um so to talk to, to talk a little about Hong Kong I know we've both been uh, back in the UK for a few years since then, uh, mm. but you were actually, but you were back in 2019, and that was uh, on a I, yeah, a I've been, yeah. Assignment. yeah, I, I, I probably like you was during the 2019 pro democracy demonstrations was just like I found myself just getting up and scoffing breakfast and then just streaming Hong Kong Free Press live coverage of what was happening, and it was just like kind of taking over my life, and so. And I was missing Hong Kong already, so yeah. I, I I just decided to go out there, and it was um, a bittersweet experience, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, I had this idea to, to take some photographs um, in a kind of style of Richard Aveton. I don't don't know if you've seen Richard Aveton's photographs that he took in the fifties, sixties mm. of individuals in the Midwest. There was one mm. quite. There's two famous images. One is an angelic, fourteen, fifteen year old boy, angelic looking, but he's holding a eviscerated rattlesnake in his hand. I don't know wow. if you know that photograph. And then there's another one of a completely bald guy just covered in bees. Oh, so, yes, yes. And what, what Richard Avdon did was he just went around the Midwest finding interesting characters and he would pin a white sheet to a barn wall and then get them to stand in front of it and take photographs. I mean, some of the protesters, it was as if Tarantino had directed Deadpool. You know, they're just like, they've got this kind of masks on and it's like chipboard, um, 
shields. Yeah. Um, they've got like traffic cones strapped to their back. The traffic cone was put onto tear gas canisters to contain the tear gas. I see. Um, yeah. And I just became a little bit obsessed with that. There was a clear demarcation of what people's roles were on uh, on the, on the demos, and there were older people that felt they couldn't be right at the front throwing petrol bombs or what have you, mm. uh, who were just administering first aid, distributing water. There were people that were whose job it was just to deactivate tear gas canisters that were were fired at protesters. It was it was just fascinating. I, I realised that I was already following a, a, an Italian photographer in in Hong Kong who was doing just that. Mm. He was going out to the demos every day with the sheets uh, and very diplomatically saying, you know, if you, you know, you remain anonymous, just need your age, what your occupation is, can I take a photograph? And his photographs are just outstanding. His name is Nicola Longabardi. Mm -hmm. And so I, I just completely left the idea of do, doing the photographs myself with the aid of a, someone with a good camera and mm -hmm. just joined him on a few, a few trips. Yeah. Uh, and it was good, yeah. The stunning photos, but, you know, and they're giving Yeah, they really are, aren't they? Like you said, the individuals behind it, because you're watching the news, it's the statistics. And of course, you see when the police moves in, you know, the peak perhaps of the... That the disturbance that day but like you say there's people like, like in Occupy in 2014 there's this organization to make sure it's run as, as safely as possible you know which is al almost seems like a you know a paradox in, in in the end when people felt they had no choice but to resist in stronger and stronger yeah. ways and you were right in the middle of that really. Well of course the, the demonstrations in 2019 were organized but but they were very very different to uh, 2014 uh, yeah. Occupy. Occupy was sublime. Lots of thoroughfares and very busy, like incessantly busy freeways yeah. were just taken over with tents. And yeah. some of Hong Kong news lectures were lecture programs were actually delivered on the street. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there was no litter. You were there. I was there. It was just stunning. Stunning. Yeah. Uh, sadly, 2019 was a lot more confrontational, a lot more risky. The, the last time I went down there, it was on the road. It's the big flyover just at Tamar. We were on that, and I was very close to the epicenter of the of the problems. And and by the way, when I turned up there, I just got myself a high vis jacket and yep. with an OHP pen. I just wrote press on the back. Bought myself a gas mask, and 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 that was really it. And a crash hat yeah. as well, constructed crash hat. And I was I was down there, and it was getting pretty hairy. And I was taking photographs of um, tear gas neutralizers. Then I looked up and I saw, I saw this. Um, they call them raptors. They're like the, mm. they're they're like almost paramilitary police were advancing. And and one of them released a tear gas canister, which was coming right directly at me. But I, it, but they they they're not shot right at you. They they arch over. So yes, you know you can see it coming. And I and I sidestepped it. And as I sidestepped it, a rubber bullet went or a. They may be not technically rubber bullets. They might be what they call um, pepper pellets. I can't remember what they're called now technically, but but um, a couple of people, uh, at one of which was a journalist, lost an eye to one of those. And as I evaded this tear gas, this yeah. this round went past my head. Yeah. Oh my god! Uh, it was the most frightening thing ever. And, and and after that, I just spent the last three or four days of my time in Hong Kong, just, just chilling out. You know, I couldn't go back down there. It, it really affected me very badly. What are the things that you loved about Hong Kong? I've always had this feeling that like, I'm a city boy, but I'm also a country boy. Yes. You know, whereas, you know, it's like in Hong Kong, you can you can jump on a minibus, you can be at Hong Hoi and get and then get another bus up to Saikong <laughs> Country Park. And then yes. within an hour and a half, you could be walking to a beach uh, for an hour and a half, which is no road access, which is the best beach on the planet. You know, yeah. so there's that, that combination of rural and, um, and, and intensely urban. I mean, that, you know, the Llama Ferry, you, it's, like, it's like if you imagine you're in New York in, in, in Wall Street. You get on a boat and then next minute you're on an island with no cars. Yeah, expat burnouts with long beards and, <laughs> <laughs> and you can get like a Reiki massage. And it's just, it's those juxtapositions. And of course the food, you know, I miss congee, I miss 
salt and pepper squid. I miss Sichuan food. There was I had a couple of favourite Sichuan restaurants there. Yeah, how long have you got? I mean, it's just yeah. a wonderful city. Do you still miss it really badly? I do. I miss it, and it comes vividly back to me. And I think you know it is that almost that sensory overload. It won't necessarily be memories of you know specific things or or people. Even you know it'll be the the sights and the smells and. I think it's almost like imprinted on my brain, you know, where I've lived, Chengchao, in Shengwan. I know every, you know, I'm sure you're the same, every corner, every corridor. So, so that, those images can come back very quickly. And I can just find myself walking down a back alley in the middle of the night, just daydreaming yeah, about yeah. that, a couple of cats yeah. running across or yeah. cats and rats maybe. And just, just the variety. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was like the best of both worlds, really. You could feel at home as a British person. Uh, but also it was stunningly different on so many different levels. Look twice down Ladder Street. Darkness closes in and the bright lights of the party recede into nothingness. A routine walk home, all downhill from here. The blank faces of nocturnal apartment blocks, souls of discretion. Getting steeper, two street lights out of action, occasional pools of orange light letting cockroaches perform tap dances, one step at a time. She tries to be alone with her thoughts. You're being watched nonsense pull yourself together this is hong kong man up but the dizzy feeling returns she stops for a breather a fog coming in off the harbor reclaiming the city she sees the exposed roots of a stone wall tree fused to the brickwork like arthritic fingers she reaches for them they recede no good must get home she ups her pace a cough not far behind her a cough fuck off not welcome here the alcohol toys with her emotions she starts to run she falls the end your writings also covered your experiences in in mozambique mm. i think we're in the same year 2019 and yeah that was a wild like, year how did you end up there and and how did mozambique compare with any expectations you might have had? Well, I ended up there because I fell in love with someone who was living in St. Leonard's and she got a job as uh, with a Spanish NGO out there. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose I, you know, I just thought, well, I, I'm just going to follow her, you know. Obviously, it was an amazing experience. Um, what I realised is that the kind of rush for Africa hasn't finished. And Mozambique has just had one thing after another in its recent history. Obviously, it was uh, became independent under a well-meaning um, left-wing government, mm -hmm. which for some reason, you know, we need some of the PhD to work this out, but somehow mm -hmm. they've become thieves and, you know, um, and brutalizers of the of the population there, both directly and indirectly in terms of financial policy and corruption. It's an interesting concept, which I learned about just before I went to Mozambique and then kind of experienced it firsthand. And that's um, climate justice. Mm -hmm. um, and the and the idea, simple idea behind climate justice is that the developed world, post-industrial worlds, um, countries are obviously largely if not 100% responsible for climate change mm. and yet the people that are suffering the, uh, the the worst upshots of that are the very very poor people and very very poor countries mm. and so um, we arrived in I arrived in Mozambique about two or three weeks after storm Idai hit southern Mozambique mm -hmm. And that was kind of okay because, you know, talking, thinking about personal safety for, for, for me and my partner, we were up north in Pemba, mm. which is up in Cabo Delgado province. Uh, and they, you know, it was, a, it was a three hour flight away from Maputo. And so it was going to be safe. But then as soon as we arrived, there was an unprecedented storm that hit there, you know. And so basically there's an amazing wing of Friends of the Earth called Justicia Ambiental. And right. I interviewed um, an amazing guy called Daniel Ribeiro in the Maputo office of that organization. Who, and they're just fighting for kind of world acceptance of the fact that we need to repay that debt. Per capita, the amount to which people in Mozambique, for instance, actually create um, carbon uh, footprint mm. is negligible, almost totally negligible compared to you, Peter, or me. Sure. And yet they're bearing the brunt of climate change. We need reparations. We need ways of making sure that people in these countries 
whose whole microclimate's changing to the yeah. point where they're having savage storms that never existed before, where they can prepare for them and in the event that they hit, can be recompensed and supported and looked after. Yeah. We, we're continuing to ply the atmosphere with, with carbon dioxide in, our, in my luxuri- well, luxurious flat. Everything's relative. But you know what I mean, and the way I consume. And yet the poor people have place in places like Mozambique, and you could say Bangladesh. You, I mean, you, the list is, yeah. is endless. You know, these people need to be looked after. We can't, we can't continue in the way we are. I think it's a $6 billion deal ExxonMobil and Anadarko did to try and extract liquid gas just off the coast mm-hmm. of Cabo Delgado. And it should be mentioned now as well, because... That province, uh, particularly the town Palmer, has been in the BBC News a lot over the last two days because um, there's a Islamic fundamentalist group there, which has got a number of names. The one I know them as is Al-Shabaab. So the people of that province are not only being completely shafted in terms of the um, the American and other countries and their allies, Japan, European countries coming together to try and extract that uh, liquid gas just off the coast. They're also like displacing communities and, and, and causing so much upset in that area. If you go onto the Anadarko website, um, they talk about like, you know, compensation, employing local um, people, um, sharing the wealth, but it's just not happening. It's causing right. mayhem, you know, it really is. And you know, you travel to Maputo as well, and, you know, you're mm. talking to artists and musicians there, mm. some of whom were kind of railing against this social injustice. What, what were your experiences in Maputo? Definitely. Like? Maputo is cosmopolitan. There's a kind of like vivid culture there. So the artists there, the ones I met, uh, are really trying their hardest to use their creative process to point out the injustices. There's an absolutely amazing, most humble guy, Mauro Pinto, who, you know, alongside another guy that I met, uh, exhibited at the Venice Biennale. He works for Justicia Ambiental, but also takes photographs, portraits of like gold miners and what have you, and the interiors of the very poor houses um, that he visits. yeah, incredible people, uh, mm. incredible people. Um, Gonzalo Mapunda, another amazing sculptor that I spent a day with, he, he makes sculptures out of spent munitions from the 25, 27-year civil war that Mozambique is still recovering from. He makes incredible masks, chairs out of shell cases, um, bits of guns. That sort of drone made of Kalashnikovs almost. Yeah, exactly it. No, that's exactly it. He's an amazing guy and he's got a a really wonderful bohemian house on Ho Chi Minh Avenue in Maputo. It's very bizarre, you know, to think about Mauro and Gonzalo's work being exhibited in really top-end galleries in London Mm -hmm. and the Mm -hmm. Venice Biennale because that in itself obviously kind of echoes some kind of colonialism the fact that like African art or art produced by Africans living in African countries is now kind of like being you can walk in off the street in Venice and see it alongside high-ranking contemporary artists from America and and England so it's a bit bizarre it's bizarre and I suppose and that's really like so many of these things it's sort of a western whim whether that sort of work is deemed to be in or not or you know rather than perhaps people looking closer at the messages yeah. behind that kind of work and you know absolutely absolutely it's a it's a it's a process of fetishization yeah uh, yeah you know, uh, and 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 not a deep sense of sympathy or engaging with the issues that they're they're that are forefront i want to mention azagaya as well i met this hip-hop guy a uh, hip-hop singer called azagaya mm. who's a folk hero in mozambique and and at first he wouldn't meet me because he was just, he'd been arrested a few times and a lot of his output is anti-government. And so he's, he's always dodging arrests and I fear death threats as well. So he wasn't keen to meet me, but, but luckily he knew the other two guys, Mauro and Gonzalo, and they put a good word in for me. So I met him. It was really touching, you know, he said, I could meet you at this place. I had to get a cab across Maputo and he was having his car fixed at a, a garage. And it was an old wreck of a car. 
And I met him there and he said, look, we'll go to that bar to have a chat. And the, uh, literally the bar was literally 150 meters from the uh, garage. And, and it took about half an hour to get there because every other person stopped. Some of them burst into tears. Wow. And he and that he was obviously just such a hero, you know, um, yeah. but a really, really humble man, you know. Like the Hong Kong thing, it's just like deeply, deeply emotional, you know, but I, I'm in a position where I can, I have the privilege just to get emotional, then just move on and just like live my lovely life, you know. More from Gareth shortly, including a memorable motorhead anecdote as we discuss his musical adventures. But first off, here's the frank off that a small but vocal minority of you have been clamouring for. All you have to do is decide whether Frank A or Frank B is the more convincing Frank Spencer. Cast your vote for Frank A or Frank B wherever you see first impressions mentioned on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook or by emailing pjhwriting at gmail.com. Results next week. Introducing Frank A. This is Frank A, Marlene. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, now listen here. I'm the real Frank Spencer. The other one is an imposter, a liar. There can be only one. He'll get what's coming to him, he will. I'll give him a piece of my mind. After he's left the room, of course. At the end of season three of Some Mothers Do Have em, Betty and I went to Australia. Back in the day, that's how they would finish a season off, send the characters to Australia. It was as good as killing the characters off. George and Mildred, they lived just across the street from us, and and the Are You Being Served mob, they lived around the corner. By the way, that Mr Humphreys is ever so nice. Ooh... Anyway, in all my years, I've never felt so harassed as I do by this pretend Frank. I'm a man. I have feelings. I challenge this false Frank to a manly duel. Ooh, I've I've never had a manly duel before. Oh, it'll be all right. Anything to protect my Betty. So please vote for me. Thanks. Introducing Frank B. This is Frank B, Marlene. <laughs> Imagine my surprise when I was not only asked to appear on a podcast, which I previously thought was something the cat might do on the rug when their mother-in-law is visiting, but to prove that I am actually the real Frank Spencer. Well, I can assure you I am, aren't I, Betty? Yes, Frank. If anyone's got a blue tick by their name, it's me. And I don't mean one of those ticks the psychiatrist puts on his form next to the option completely delusional. I mean, if I was completely delusional, I wouldn't be able to see that he's putting a tick there with his big blue NHS pen, would I? Just because I'd taken to roller skating to the hospital while hanging onto the back of a double-decker bus doesn't mean I'm crazy. I mean, not compared to all those cinema-goers who paid good money to watch me in Condor Man. <laughs> so you might ask what I've been doing since my 70s heyday. Well, as you may be aware, in Series 4, I was accidentally cast in a musical called Phantom of the Opera. Who knew I had such a lovely voice? And though you turn from me to glance behind, the Phantom of the Opera is there inside. You mind? Well, after that, I was a member of the Wu-Tang Clan for a while. Dirty old Frankie, they called me, throwing out words and shapes and that. Unfortunately, I was implicated in a drive-by that turned into a crash into, the upshot being that I ran over Ice Cube's foot while operating a milk cart, and he got very, very angry, even when I offered to put a few ice cubes on it for him. 
So, we sold a masonette in Compton, had our tattoos surgically removed and came back home with the cat. Betty and I set up a B&B in Scarborough called Some Mothers Do Have a Nice Fry-Up and we've been running that ever since. So when people come along and say that they are the real Frank Spencer, I say no. I am the real him, and if your bed's a little soft and you don't like the frilly decorations, we'll go and stay in one of them Airbnbs then. Just don't expect to see a man riding a horse backwards outside your window while singing beautiful operatic numbers. And now it's time to turn to you out there. Yes, you, with the face for radio. Listen very carefully, I shall say this only once. If you don't choose me, I'll be sending the cat round to do a whoopsie on your head. There, I've said it. Mm. I hate to be overly frank, but I am frank. Get over it. Music is a big part of your life, I know. How did that all start for you? My mum only had about two records, I seem to remember. One was Carmen Jones, which was obviously the, the Hollywood version of uh, Bizet's Carmen uh, and West Side Story. So that, 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 that's the sort of music I cut my teeth on at the age of eight or nine. I got into soul at the age of 12, 13. I was a Stax and Tamla man, boy, 12, 13. But then I sort of like... Um, Changed horses in the middle of the stream and became a progressive rock freak when I was about 15, 16. I was in a sort of progressive rock band when I was about 16, 17. When Lemmy left Hawkwind and started Motorhead on their first UK tour, we supported them. So I supported them at um, the age of 16. And, wow. uh, and like a, a nice lower middle class kid, my dad picked me up from that gig. And because uh, and we had a residency at this club, uh-huh. The night Motorhead played there, we were in the same dressing room. And um, my dad was quite habituated to coming up the back stairs and poking his yeah. head around the door. You know, he's a sweet man. And he would come and, you know, because he was driving and drive my drum set. As he poked his head around the door, filthy animal Taylor, who was bollock naked, apart from, <laughs> I can remember it really vividly, apart from a biker's jacket and a pair of hobnail boots. And, a, and he had a bottle of Jack Daniels in his hand. And I'm not joking. The moment my dad came around the door, filthy animal Taylor fell back into this clothes rail with his legs akimbo, you know, bearing all. And I'll never forget the look on my dad's face. But that was, yeah, that was, yeah, it's quite oh, scary, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. You, you're a kid, really, but you... Yeah, I, I was very much a kid. Yeah, I was I keep, a I, yeah, yeah. I keep thinking, we keep mentioning these, these famous people, but, you know, whenever you want to do an impression of any of them, you know, this being First Impressions podcast. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm, not really, I'm not really good at impressions. Uh, <laughs> you can yeah, always drop, so drop one in. I'll, I'll put it in the back of my mind, Peter, and see yeah. how we go. <laughs> I suppose the biggest thing is that like, in the um, late 80s, I met a guy called Ross Dewberry, who's a, a jazz DJ, a jazz um, promoter. Um, he used to manage Terry Callier back in the day. Oh, and right. he brought a lot of really big, neglected jazz giants over from America. And because oh. I was one of his best mates at the time, still am actually, I was his best man. He, I always got the seat. So I played with some amazing American jazz musicians and Latin musicians. Oh. Played with Bernard Purdy, Idris Mohammed, Johnny Lytle, uh, Reuben Wilson, Melvin Sparks. But I always say I hang around with musicians because I'm just a drummer. But my, my, my main instrument is conga. Uh-huh. And I played a lot of conga over the years, yeah. I saw you a few times in Hong Kong with your band there. It's, it's just weird. It's ironic, really, that the, the, the kind of the, the most enduring music projects I, I've had uh, with real Latin maestros, if you like, have been in Hong Kong. So there was um, David Charla, who's a Cuban guy, mm-hmm. and just a multi-instrumentalist, an amazing percussionist, mm-hmm. much better than me, but also an incredible singer and piano player and arranger and composer. And then the other one was Alonso Gonzalez, who I can't tell you how uh, pleased I was when he kind of almost headhunted me to come play with his band. And he, he you know, he's from Cartagena, which I know is a town that will never be erased from your memories. <laughs> he met Anita. What was our song from there? Blue, Blue Moon was our song from there, which is okay. which is a bit strange because what a musical town that is. You go from square mm. to square and there's different, yeah. different beats, yeah, different yeah. tunes happening. People are just dancing. I, and like enormous, I remember, you know, I was there lucky enough to be there a few days and even, you know, in some mornings there seemed to be like, there were sort of keep fit sessions, but with amazing music going and everyone synchronized, you know, doing their exercises. 
Yeah. And uh, you just think, what a great, what a great way to live. Yeah, I'd love, uh, I'd love to go there. It's always been a, an amazing enigma to me that I've, I've always loved the music of Brazil and Cuba and Latin and South America generally, and I've never actually been there to be honest. It's crazy, absolutely crazy. That's the truth. But I, I, I was going to tell you the first. It's funny. I was telling you that like when Alonso headhunted me and said, "Come and play," my first gig was in this. It's a really exclusive cocktail bar. Didn't sell beer at all. They wouldn't give the band free drinks. I always took a flask oh. of rum with me. Right. Uh, but my first gig there, I was like, oh, God, I've arrived. I'm with Alonzo, you know, yeah. and this yeah. guy's just amazing, you know. Yeah. And um, my, my girlfriend at the time, Rabia, who you might have met, um, yes. was out on the, on the lash in Lang Kwai mm. Fong, and she mm. came late on in the gig and was the worst for wear. Okay. And, it was, um, and she just came in and um, completely lost it, burst into tears and ran up onto the stage Oh, and gave God. me a big hug and a kiss halfway through a number. And I was going, I'm trying to get this gig. This guy is just, you know, I'm playing with one of the, this guy is Latin. So, you know, he played with so many people. He played with people that used to play with Miles Davis. And I really want to play with this right. guy, you know. Yes. Uh, she was showing his support in a very, yeah, very spontaneous yeah. way. Yeah. Luckily, Alonzo and the other band members were really, really uh, understanding. And your son, of course, is a, is a musician as well. And... Uh, mm and a podcaster. How did, how did his musical journey begin? Something I probably never told you, but he, 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 when he was in a, he was in a community carnival uh, samba band with me at the age of about 12 to 14. We actually played, you, you'll know the answer to this. Mm. I'm not sure if it was the last game that was played at the old Wembley Stadium or the penultimate game, oh. Brazil versus England. Oh gosh, how amazing. Um, I think that was the last game. Before the game, we did circuit. Of the, we went through the old players' tunnel as well. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And, we, and then we went round. Oh. But, but Jack was there. He was about 12. 12. Um, and anyway, yeah, we, were, we, we, went, we did two circuits of the pitch on the, the, running, you know, the running track around the outside. And then we, then we just played the whole match in front of the Brazilian crowd. Brazilian fans. Yeah. But the thing was, when we did when we did the circulation of the of the of the um, of the pitch before the match, Jack was playing a go-go, which is like these two bells that they're in one loop. And I was playing snare, catcher. So we're in different sessions, uh, but I know everyone in the band, and everyone knows everyone in the band. So he's he's fine back there with them. At one point, he runs to me. He goes, "Dad, Dad, Tony Adams just knocked me over." And as the, England, as the England team came over, apparently Tony Adams just poleaxed him, just ran into him. And he was a really massive football fan at the time. So, yeah. What a claim to fame, all of that. And being barged out the way. I've watched Tony Adams play. I've seen what his elbows are capable of on the pitch. So it's interesting he was also taking out innocent yeah. young musicians also. It's just he can't stop himself, obviously. So Jack was performing, like yourself, from quite a young, a young age. Yeah, and then and then we did. He, he must have played several Glastonburys with the same band as well. He was in Spectre Soul for a number of years, and now he's a solo artist called Workforce, and he makes drum and bass music. He's been on Radio One and so on. And yeah, yeah, Radio One. Some of the tunes on YouTube have got like in excess of a million hits. Particularly, he did a remix of Delilah. He's doing well. The, the podcast is really, really good. He's basically, I think, the thesis is to try and give people access to the creative process, the agonies that people go through. Mm -hmm. and the strategies they use to overcome those agonies. It's been ma mainly EDM producers, musicians that he's been interviewing, but the, the, I think the, the idea is that he'll expand that out to people in different domains. It's called mm -hmm. The Must Make Podcast. The Must yeah. Make Podcast, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll include a link to that. got me through in lockdown has been um chora music um i don't know if you know chora music from from mali and west africa i think it mainly comes from the mandinka people in mali uh what they call the griot tradition and it, but it kind of spread further south into places like guinea the gambia senegal 
and it's just so beautiful it's so beautiful uh, if i had to put my money on one musical form that has got me through lockdown it would be chora music really there's a guy called tumani diabetti who did an album with alifakitori which has been on but i think the youngster say he's been on rotation i see yes <laughs> i've been rinse i've been rinsing it you know uh, and and I, i find it really calming you know music and and how that's impacted you but what about in terms of spirituality because I've always been curious you know you mentioned you do transcendental meditation and it's yeah yeah not something I know very much about at all but I know it's you know kind of been important it, for you it's been an absolute lifesaver in lockdown to be honest with you Peter um back in the day I used to meditate regularly for years and years when I was in my 20s uh it, the, the mantra no pun intended was always like don't meditate for the experience in meditation you you meditate for the for the impact it has in action you know uh, time after yeah. Yeah. but i have to say that that kind of thing has gone out the window but i i really really look forward to my uh 20 minutes half an hour meditation every day it's really really been good and i and i have actually experienced a lot i, I yeah mm-hmm. we've all we're all experiencing um kind of levels of uh, vulnerability and anxiety in lockdown. And, and of course I have been too, but I've really noticed that the meditation has had a really positive effect on being able to regulate that and to be able to manage it and get through it. And um, yeah, really, really good, really good. On a practical level, is, is there a, 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 do you need to sort of prompt for that or, or is it just a case of finding that time where you're going to meditate? And, and I mean, prompt, it's something I mean, studied. I don't know. There's a huge debate around this. There's a, I know there are people that would say you don't need to learn. You don't need to pay to learn right. TM. I did. It cost me 25 yeah. quid in 1977, 78, oh, uh, which was quite a lot of money at the time. And the Maharishi's argument on that was always like, well, people in the West don't value anything unless, unless they've paid money for it. And if we want them to yeah. stick at it, um, then they need to have experienced some outlay so that they yeah. actually... Are more likely to stick with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like a very convenient argument, I know. <laughs> but Marie, was never one of these yeah, people that drove drove um, drove Rolls Royces or had multiple mistresses. No. I still, I still think it's good oil to this day, you know. And yeah, famously yeah. practiced by Russell Brand and David Lynch, which I always found surprising. Mm-hmm. But I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not evangelical about TM. Mm. There are loads of other mindfulness techniques and meditation techniques which probably do the same thing, just slightly differently, you know, just find your own way, you know. Yeah. But it's been very, very useful for me, I have to say, yeah. What about books? Because I know, I'm sure, possibly the first time we ever met and certainly when, you know, we'd go to, I'd call at Club 71 and mm. bump into each other, which was always lovely. You know, you'd always have your head in a book yeah, as yeah. If you were there drinking. So what, what, what have you been reading? The deep irony around this question is that I'm mm. surrounded by half-read and unread books. I mean, literally everywhere I look in this room is just like piles of books. Um, yes. And if nothing else, lockdown affords us the time to actually read. But I find it very difficult to focus, to be honest with you. But yeah, I've been reading. I have been reading. I've read a lot online as well. I've read a lot online. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but my reading habits have changed. I've got a couple of books by my bed, so I you know so that I I typically read. At the moment, the two books I've got by my bed are P.J.A. O'Rourke. It's oh, a compendium yeah. of short pieces by him from the 60s through to the 90s. Uh, and it's just like, because I can never read in bed because I just fall asleep. So I just read one chapter. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's bite size, And that's, that's, yeah, that's, yeah, that's good, good stuff. I haven't read yeah. him. A, a very funny writer. Oh, my God. He's the king of the simile. Some of his similes just crack me up. Yeah. No, it's great. It's absolutely great. It's a bit macro. It's a bit beat. Which okay. I know is right up your street, but yeah. yeah. And the other thing I've got there is um, I've got a good friend who, in a conversation, we were talking about the kind of the uh, the burdens of lockdown and the tribulations of being isolated, and mm-hmm. and she said, "Oh, and still we rise." And I said, "Yeah." And, and she, it, of mm-hmm. course, it was a quote from Maya Angelou. So I bought a okay. 
a book of uh, her poems, one of which is the title poem of the book, which is right. And Still I Rise. Um, yeah. And I find myself have this sort of like bedtime and, and, and rising richer in the morning. I sometimes just read that poem again. It's very beautifully accessible because I don't usually get on with poetry. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I was anticipating this question. I was thinking, in terms of fiction, the, the, the one that's really blown me away of this year has been um, Bernardine Evaristo. Did you ever read mm-hmm. Girl, Woman, Other? I haven't yet, no. no you, Booker I, Prize I, I, winner I, I, in 2019. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, when I first started to read it, I just thought, oh God, it's so self-consciously beautifully written. I couldn't get mm. over that at all. Okay. But then I gradually lent into it and it's just beautiful and it's basically I don't know if I'm right in calling it a polyphonic novel so each chapter is from a different viewpoint from one that is written first person from one of the protagonists and and it's um, all the protagonists are women uh, their their lives span Scotland England the Caribbean Africa And some of them, they all they all intersect in some way. They sort of all overlap in some way. Yes. Some of them know about those overlapping and those interconnections. Some don't. And it's just absolutely beautiful. It blew me away. Yeah. I'm reading a hell of a lot of other stuff. I'm reading this mm. book at the moment, which I would really recommend. Selfie. Like, oh, the West Cave. Yeah. Obsessed. And it's, yep. I kind of found my niche really with this and both with this book. Robert will write why Buddhism is true. Because the, the thing they have both have in common is that they're not just like academic tomes. Mm-hmm. They're not desktop research projects. They actually go out and, in, and get themselves involved. So mm. with, the, with the selfie one, Will Store, he, he looks at why we have prevalent, uh, prevalent ideas about what the self is and what the self has to be in terms of society's expectations and what have you. But he doesn't, as I said, just like do desk research goes out he spends a couple of weeks with benedictine monks in scotland he goes to sln which is that really notorious encounter group place where the the idea of the encounter group started in the in the uh, west coast of the states um and it's absolutely fabulous absolutely brilliant right, right. brilliant uh, it, it 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 deals with the you know the burgeoning cases of uh, suicide in, in relation to self-image and peer pressure uh, right through to questions to do, does the self actually exist? I hate the title of that, Why Buddhism is True. That's a commissioning editor's airport lounge, yes. wank off, you know. <laughs> um, but but this is a, he's an evolutionary psychologist, and he's basically saying the ideas of e- evolutionary psychology are actually aligning pretty much with what Buddha said, you know. Okay. Uh, okay. But he doesn't just pontificate. He actually go. He, he talks... He, he describes himself as a reluctant meditator, mm. but actually goes through and tries different meditation techniques and then reports back on what he experienced, but splices that with a fucking great book around mm. uh, the main, main tenets of Buddhist philosophy, yeah. Are you a fan of music books, you know, in the non-fiction area? Or you, do you read sort of... Yeah, I, I've dipped it, over the last six months, dipped into um, David Byrne's book, mm. How Music Works. And that's a book you can dip into chapter by chapter. So that's, that's been incredible because I've done quite a lot of uh, writing about music in St. Leonard's and Hastings. And also I'm working with a guy from Nashville, Tennessee, who now lives in St. Leonard's on a, on a, a project to kind of examine and promote, examine what it means to have a good music scene in a town, okay. what that actually looks like and how yeah. better to promote it. That's interesting. So it's, he's looking at it from... How how that can be sort of potentially transferred to different towns and cities, how to encourage a, a scene. The, the thing with Hastings is it kind of thinks it's got the best music scene on, on the planet. And in some ways it absolutely does. You know, there's an incredible thing in Hastings on a Sunday where when, when all things are, you know, equal, not in lockdown, where all the pubs in the old town informally work out a schedule to put their live acts on so that it doesn't clash with live acts in other towns pubs in the town yeah yeah and then then everyone moves on mass so every pub experiences like an hour and a half two hours of intense right busyness um it's just incredible every every sunday is a bit like a mini festival uh and it ends up at a bar called the whistle trago which has the latest license so yeah it has a good sense it has a good scene in some in some ways but also Mm. there's lots of upcoming musicians who are kind of 
hitting a ceiling because there are a lot of um, a lot of bands here that that go out and play or musicians that go out and play mm. for very little money mm. because they, you know they've got like a they're doing telemark uh, they're doing marketing or Mac design or whatever during the day or they might be yeah. mortgage free they're of a certain age like my age so they, they're not really they they just go out just do it for fun sure so there's a there's a sort of kind of blockage in the system. Mm, so mm. we've been i've been working with this guy mike willis to try and unblock that if you mm. if you will or at least raise awareness about it yeah there's a link to a, on my facebook page to a, a an article after a debate we had like a mick from baby shambles and mm. a local promoter of like jazz and soul music and and mike mike himself it sounds like you've got a few projects sort of going on and what 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 are the what are the sort of future plans yeah i would love to continue writing i find it i don't know how you find it actually we been great to have a few beers and really drill down on this but i <laughs> you know when i've got a deadline i i get i get in some sort of like existential mind frame where i have this in, internal conversations about like well, you can do it you can do it you know just sit down and do it yeah but i don't want to i want to i want to <laughs> cook i want to have a glass yeah. of wine i want to go for a walk <laughs> and do you know what I mean? I, I, and I, I, it's only now. I've really been, I've, I mean, obviously, as an educator, running, you know, being a vice principal of a school for so long, mm. I was writing every day, but it's different. Mm. I don't know who said it, but, you know, people say, oh, good, good writers find it most difficult to write. But, I mean, I'm sure a lot of bad writers do as well. And once you're out of it, I think, you know, once you're out of the habit, very, I find very, very quickly, you know, the, the, the walls can come up and stuff and you just... Mm. You know, you start to, to to it gets harder and harder to try and work work your way back into it. I'm tentatively moving to a point position where I'm a little bit more confident about my writing than I was. Because mm. I don't know about you, sometimes the more you agonise over a piece, if you're not in the zone and it's not flowing, yeah, the more at the end you go, oh, I'm going to give this up. I'm not a writer. That's shit. Mm. You know. And then then I submit it. I think for I'll flippantly submit it, and then they go back. Wow, that's amazing. And you go, yeah. really? Yeah. It's just incredible, in, in, incredibly kind of enlivening and also anxiety-inducing process, isn't it? And that's it, probably it, why it, we do it, you know, it's like yeah. the adrenaline rush. Thanks so much for listening to episode seven of First Impressions. You can find links to some of the fascinating subject matter covered by Gareth, including climate justice in the podcast details. I would also advise you to follow the links to the musical artists, old and new, that have influenced him. Huge thanks to Gareth for coming on today. And also a big shout out to Frank A, whose impression of the man we love to ape had me in more stitches than Frank himself after one of his accidents. Don't forget to vote. The story excerpt you heard in the Hong Kong section of the show was from Look Twice Down Ladder Street, a crime story I set in Shenwan that was published in the Hong Kong Gothic Anthology back in 2014. Find that on Amazon and elsewhere. Back soon with a new episode and until then, take good care. And as this is a sweary episode, I can tell you that I fucking love you. Bye, 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 bye. No, I can't. I can't. I can't do an impression. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. Yeah. Well, can't help you, mate. You have to rebrand your podcast for this edition.